Good evening. Welcome to the Ecology Hour. My name is Tim Bray. With me uh, via Squadcast is Dr. Robert Spies, a co-host for this program. And uh, we're going back to the marine realm. So, Bob, would you like to introduce tonight's guest? Yeah, I'm really happy to be uh, down on the bottom of the ocean again because I grew up as a benthic ecologist. And uh, so our uh, guest today is a benthic ecologist, uh, Dr. Jim Berry. He's a uh, lead scientist at the Monterey Bay Aquarium Research Institute in Moss Landing, California, and all kinds of interesting things going on down there. So I, I thought we would uh, uh, start off our program uh, talking about some of the capabilities and uh, facilities that they have at, at the Institute, because it's, uh, it's pretty amazing. And then we could kind of grade into uh, talking about uh, things that live on the bottom of Monterey Bay and, and generally along the California coast and how they might be affected by climate change, changes in oxygen and temperature and acidity. So, uh, Jim, welcome to our program. Well, thanks for having me, Bob. It's a pleasure to be on. One of the things we usually do with our guests to start with is uh, ask them to, for the sake of our, of our listeners, ask them to describe kind of how they got into uh, what they do, the field, uh, how they got interested, perhaps as a as a young child or in in uh, high school or college, and the kind of a uh, little bit about their their career path uh, to where they are right now. Oh well, I'd be happy to share that a little bit. I I started as a kid from the center of the country. I was born in St. Joe, Missouri, which you might remember is the start of the Pony Express, and about as far from the ocean as you can get. And my family left there when I was about three, worked its way to Utah for about seven years. And then we moved to the San Francisco Bay Area in the early 60s as a kid, when I was a kid, only 10. And my mother was loved the ocean and would take us to the beach. We lived along the shores of San Pablo Bay, and I started crawling around on the rocks, looking at all the animals, got out to the beach. And as I grew up, I ended up starting to surf. And that to me was like a drug. I didn't take drugs. I was a clean cut kid, but surfing to me was just about the best thing you could do. And I kept going through school and I figured out that if I just kind of kept studying oceanography, maybe I could actually get a job doing something that was related to the ocean. And for me, it worked out. I got a master's at Moss Landing Marine Labs in zoology and marine science, and then went on to Scripps Institution of Oceanography, where I got a degree in biological oceanography with a dissertation working on shoreline animals off the coast of La Jolla. Um, after that, I had a postdoc working in the Antarctic with uh, Paul Dayton, who was my advisor at Scripps. Went on to Moss Landing Marine Labs, where I was a visiting scientist for a year, and then landed a job at this relatively new place, Monterey Bay Aquarium Research Institute, or Ambari, which had only started in 1987, and this was now 1991, and I ended up getting a job there and have been there ever since as a, a marine ecologist. Well, Monterey Bay uh, Research Institute, or Ambari, is uh, certainly uh, kind of an unusual institute, uh, uh, at least for the West Coast, where it's... Uh, there's private money that goes into it from the aquarium, uh, and then it, uh, it, it's, it, it's a dedication to uh, kind of uh, bringing technology to the ocean to kind of advance our knowledge of the ocean. And, and where it's situated in Monterey Bay is a wonderful place to do that. Perhaps you could tell us 
generally kind of about the Institute and some of the capabilities it has. I know that there's been a lot of investment in high technology underwater gear. Sure, I'd be happy to say something about Ambari. It's a really a unique place. And it really began with, um, I suppose, the Packard family, and he has some children, some of which went through the local colleges here and got degrees in marine science. And in 1984, they opened the Monterey Bay Aquarium. And in, as you, most of you know, are along the old canneries in Monterey, uh, along the shoreline of Monterey. And they thought at that time, Monterey Bay Aquarium is a nonprofit organization. And my understanding was that they would take some of the research, I'm sorry, some of the proceeds from the ticket sales and whatever else they do to make money and put that into research. And so that happened for a few years. They were putting some amount of money, about a half million or more. I don't, actually, I don't know the, the numbers into research. And I believe David Packard at that time said, you know, this isn't quite what I had in mind. I wanted something much bigger like Scripps or Woods Hole, which are a couple of the premier oceanographic institutions in the world. And he said, let's just make a new place called Monterey Bay Aquarium Research Institute, and we'll fund it with a uh, funds from the Packard Foundation, and we will bring together scientists and engineers to try and address some of those really difficult problems in ocean science that are limited by technology. So he brought his Hewlett Packard and his entire sort of engineering background to apply it to what should be oceans and ocean science and, and something that he realized, especially through his education and through his children, um, was important to society. So that's how it started. And the idea would be to try and address what are some of those tough problems, climate change or understanding ocean ecosystems or simply exploring the ocean, which we don't know about, no, don't know enough about already, uh, to try and put in place some of the tools that would allow us to make progress there. And so some of the people said, well, what you've got to do is make a manned submarine so that we can have something like Alvin, the uh, famous research sub that's run by Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution. And he said, nope, there's, why would we put manned, uh, put in place men and people in subs when we could make robots to do the same thing? So he really invested heavily in remotely operated vehicles, which at the time, these remotely operated subs or ROVs were used principally in the oil field to help um, platform uh, operations. And so initially, Ambari purchased an oil field ROV and then modified it to add better cameras, some robotic arms and sensors that would be important for oceanographic studies and biological studies in the ocean. And we then bought a boat, and this was before I arrived, but that's how we got started. And I can talk more about how what's happened since, if you like, as well. Yeah, and uh, I know that uh, some of the early scientists there, like uh, a fellow that I uh, had contact with when I was working at UC Santa Barbara, uh, Bruce Robeson, uh, was uh, really kind of pushed forward the, uh, at least in the public eye, uh, you know, with some of the wonderful tools and what they could do uh, uh, off your ships down there. There's been a lot of good publicity, I think, that comes from that sort of thing. Oh, definitely. Bruce is, is still at Ambari, and um, he was instrumental in bringing me on, so I'm very grateful to Bruce for that. And Bruce has been studying the midwater animals in the ocean for a long time. And one of the things that people have done 
since fishermen have been fishing is to drag nets through the water and bring things up. And when you do that, all of the things like fishes and uh, some of the crustaceans come up pretty much intact. And so you kind of get an idea of what's down there based on nets. But the things that come up that are more gelatinous fauna, those things that jellies and all sorts of jellies, they come up as, as goo, basically. They don't handle being dragged by nets. And so our understanding of what lived in the ocean in terms of especially the more fragile animals that live in the midwaters of the ocean was really poor based on nets. And when Bruce and others began using submersibles for observations, whether they were um, human occupied submersibles or just robots, we started to understand what's there and in far more diversity than we expected. And we also started to understand how these animals are interacting with one another and how their relationship with this rain of organic debris from surface waters, the food that feels the, the food that fuels everything in the deep sea for the most part, how that whole system is working. And Bruce has been instrumental in helping advance some of the technology that's allowed us to make these observations. So after we bought that oil field ROV, the next thing that we set about doing, and this happened before I arrived with Bruce's input, is to design and build our own ROV that's really optimized for observations of midwater animals. And that ROV called the Tiburon at the time, um, we used for many years and it's since been um, uh, retired. And we've now purchased other ROVs because ROV technology has come for science has come along rapidly over the last couple of decades. And so many of the people are using these ROVs and now we've moved into autonomous underwater vehicles, sort of um, robots that are untethered and you send them off with a mission. They have navigation systems, sensors, acoustics, cameras, whatever they may be, may be for that particular mission to try and either map the bottom or observe midwater animals or make measurements of even things as, uh, as advanced as trying to do molecular studies in situ to understand environmental DNA and other things like that. It might be helpful to just before we drift off into what you're finding, uh, talk a little, just a little bit about why ROVs, why you chose uh, to go with remotely operated vehicles and what the advantages to that are over manned vehicles. Sure. Well, manned vehicles are far more expensive simply because of the safety factor that you have to put in place to, to run manned or human occupied vehicles. They're also much larger. If you, you have to have a sphere to put around us for remotely operated vehicles, you can put them down. They can stay out for, it's really unlimited. They can stay out for weeks to months on end without coming back to the surface. We operate our ROVs, which are tethered vehicles. So the tether actually puts down lots of power and has fiber optic cables to bring up a uh, high bandwidth demand video and other data that are coming up. And we can, we usually run those 12 hours a day, but many institutions run those uh, day, throughout the day. So 24 hours a day, I've been out with Japanese that uh, cruises where they'll run the ROV for a day or more at a time. So the, the adding a human occupied vehicle just increases complexity. And there are those that say the only way to really get a good view of the seabed or what's out there in the ocean is with stereo vision, looking through a, a port on the submarine. And 
with cameras, usually you only have a single camera, so you lose that depth perception. But even now there are efforts for virtual reality with stereo glasses. We've just instituted that on some of our ROVs and we're experimenting with that now. And there have been efforts over the years to try and make the, the remote experience as close to being there as, as you can make it. And so I personally believe that the advantage of human occupied vehicles is that there isn't one. The, the advantages of robots is, is much greater due to their cost, their safety factor. And, and now when we sit in the ROV, we sit in the control room and watch video. In the past, the cameras weren't quite as good, but now with these new cameras and we're putting a 4K camera on our ROVs just in the next couple of months, you look at that screen and it, it looks like you're looking through into an aquarium. It's that crisp and clear. So I, I guess I believe that there's no real need to put a human in into the ocean when you can make the same sort of science advances using robots. Well, things have certainly come a long way. I, uh, I know back in the eighties, I, I was doing some work off point conception, uh, down to about a 700 feet and, uh, Delta class sub, <laughs> which is a pretty old technology. And we were using lasers to, to, uh, focus in on the, uh, to get us some depth, depth measurements. Uh, I mean, distance measurements from what we were looking at. So we could kind of, uh, size the organisms we were looking at on some of the rocks down there, but, but that was, uh, it was amazing. And it's, I'm just been bowled over by the, 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 the advance in technology where you, you used to have to be able to get a huge ship out that would cost, you know, tens of thousands of dollars a day. And that was back in the, back in the eighties, uh, to record data. Now you can send on a, a, a programmed, uh, submarine to do all, go to all kinds of depths, take all kinds of measurements and, uh, have the kind of instruments that are totally amazing. Uh, you know, like you said, measuring DNA in a water column or, in the case of the Deepwater Horizon oil spill, they were measuring uh, polynuclear aromatic hydrocarbon concentrations and a, a GC mass spec on board one of these things. It was a, uh, it's so it, it's really, really uh, uh, come a long way in the last thirty or forty years. Oh, I agree, and and the cost is really important to consider because ships, it's tens of thousands. Ours is roughly 40,000 a day for the Western Flyer. If you get on some of these ocean class vessels, they're on the order of 60, 60 plus thousand a day just to run the ship. So that, that makes putting some of these sensing devices in the water extremely expensive. And so the hope is that we can start to scale up from autonomous instruments that we can put in the ocean that don't, that will release our, our dependence on the ships. And a fantastic example of that started with the Argo program, which was a really a, an ocean physics experiment where uh, I believe it started at Scripps and the University of Washington, started to make floats that would measure temperature, salinity, and depth. And they had an oil-filled bladder or have an oil-filled bladder that would, uh, by program, compress or rise, allowing this float to sink down to 2000 meters and then slowly rise in the water column to measure those three parameters and then connect with a satellite and send their data back. And so all you had to do was throw the float in the water and it would stay there or will stay there for 
about five years before the batteries die. That program led to, I think if you go to the Argo website now, there's something like 3,800 floats in the ocean right, right at this moment we're talking. And that is an international program where now we don't need ships. We can either drop these from a ship or some of them can actually be dropped by an airplane flying by or a ship of opportunity like a fishing vessel going somewhere. All you need to do is to drop the sensor or drop the float in the water. It's, and the floats are about as big as a, uh, oh, um, a nitrogen tank that's a, a small submarine, you know, about a foot in diameter and about four feet tall. Those floats have been developed much more uh intensively by a group at Ambari led by Ken Johnson and others across the country that have been making new sensors to add to those. So Ken developed a pH sensor that instead of using water, uh, sort of wet chemistry to determine pH, it uses an IR spectrum analyzer. And you just need to measure changes in the absorbance of seawater, absorbance of particular wavelengths of light to measure the pH of the water, or I'm sorry, that, that's for nitrate concentrations. I misspoke. So there's a uh, Honeywell developed a pH sensor that can be used. And he worked with, Ken worked with Honeywell to make a deep sea version of that. He developed an, uh, this nitrate sensor and knew the advance in oxygen sensors allow those three parameters to be put onto these Argo floats. And now they call it bio Argo. So they can not only measure the physics of the ocean, but they can start to estimate changes in nutrient concentrations, oxygen levels, and with pH, they can also measure, start to understand the carbonate chemistry of the water column to understand biological processes that are going in the going um, on in the water column. Now, that program, now called GoBGC, Global Biogeochemistry Float Systems, we're just funded by the National um, Science Foundation, and I believe they're now putting 600 floats in the global ocean to try and start to expand our sort of health sensing of the ocean without having to have ships go out and make these measurements. So the, the ocean's uh, gone from being woefully undersampled to uh, uh, at least <laughs> making huge advances in, in physics and chemistry. Uh, uh, yeah, I was thinking the same exact thing when you were talking about all this. Uh, I, you know, when you started there in the 1980s is when many of us were still watching, you know, Jacques Cousteau specials and the like. And I, the thing I remember from those years was we know more about the surface of the moon than we do about the bottom of the ocean. Uh, it sounds like that's maybe not so true anymore. Well, we've certainly made some important strides. And one of those has been the advances in sensors that allow us to make measurements coupled with the, the platforms like these floats or other autonomous platforms like moorings and whatever else can just sit out in the ocean and, and be the weather stations or the sensors that don't require a person to be there all the time to make the measurement. Um, I would still say that there are areas of the ocean we just don't know enough about, and mapping is one of those. We The maps we have of the surface of Mars or the moon are probably better than the maps we have of the, the coastal margin if you just go right off of your coast. And the Cascadia margin is one area that um, is a focal area for NOAA's program in mapping, and Imbari's been involved in that as well. We've developed, um, we realized early on that in order to really be surgical about the way that we deployed our ROV to make measurements of things on the seabed, 
we needed to understand what the important targets were. And the only way to, uh, to know where you want to go is to have a map and, and realize, oh, look at that unique feature right there. Let's go dive there. Because deploying an ROV allows you to drop that ROV down into deep water on a cable into an area roughly the size of a football field. And you can only go a, a kilometer or so one way or the other. So you better choose wisely to, about where you want to, to dive. So early in Ambari's history, we contracted with a firm that had a multi-beam mapping system hole mounted on their ship. And we had them map all of Monterey Bay and kind of that region, as well as several spots up and down the coast that some of our scientists were planning to dive. And those maps served as the base maps for us to choose dive sites. The geologists realized we need even better maps than that, uh, than those that could be collected from the surface. Because if you think about how these maps are made, acoustic mapping systems put a beam down from the ship and the deeper that water is, the broader that beam will be when it hits the seafloor and then reflects back up to the ship. And so a pixel size, one unit is roughly, oh, 30 to 50 meters across if you're mapping from the surface. But Embari engineers devised a mapping AUV, an underwater, basically it looks like a torpedo, that flies along and it has a multi-beam mapping system in its hull as well as... Uh, a sub-bottom profiler in its hole as well, and a side-scan sonar. And they can program this thing with a navigation system to fly 50 meters above the seabed. And now when you're just 50 meters above the seabed instead of 3,000 meters, that pixel size goes from roughly 50 meters across to now only one meter across. And so you get incredibly accurate maps that allow you to see features the size of your kitchen table instead of this, something that you may miss, even if it's the size of your house. So those maps that we can't map all of Monterey Bay, but you can say, I need a map based on the surface map. Let's target this area at Sur Ridge off our coast, make a map of that. And then I can focus in the, my ROV target locations. And that's been incredibly successful in providing an understanding of the various features, including tectonic faults, submarine canyons, and other targets of interest for the geologists and biologists. Some of those earlier uh, methods uh, uh, were really, I think, really helpful in supplying uh, data that were useful in setting up marine protected areas along the coast as well. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. And, and Imbari is not the only group that's been doing this. Um, yeah. so, some researchers at Cal State Monterey Bay mapped the entire coastline out to three miles from the Canadian border down to the Mexican border. Wow. And those, those data are freely yeah. available now. Well, you're talking, we, we've got both a geologist and a biologist in, uh, <laughs> here on this call. Uh, and uh, I noticed on your website that one of the things you've been doing is looking at those submarine canyons and the sediment transport down the canyons and kind of worked out a mystery that I remember working on uh, many, uh, like three decades ago as a geologist and the, uh, the origin of turbidites and how all that material gets distributed and deposited. Uh, no, you're, Is that something you've worked no, on? No, that's right. And I, I would say that I've been peripherally involved in that. I've been interested more in the biology of the canyons, but there is a geologist named Charlie Paul at Embari 
that has led a program recently to try and really look carefully at transport down these canyons. And there, in, as a geologist, Tim, you might know there's a lot of interest in, well, how are submarines canyons created? Are they Were they made when rivers were draining down those valleys or are they created when they're submerged? And um, the answer is submerged, but some, um, some canyons connect right to the shore like Monterey Submarine Canyon, which connects all the way to the mouth of the harbor at Moss Landing. And uh, the transport of sand north and south along the beaches of Moss Landing end up being dumped into the canyon. And then once in a while, there's a turbidity flow that lets go. And Charlie Paul worked with USGS and uh, a scientist from Japan and the UK to instrument Monterey Canyon. And I was involved in this effort as well with a number of moorings that included temperature, I'm sorry, uh, current sensors, um, temperature sensors, and then other instruments they developed to try and figure out how is the canyon moving. And first they just found out how frequent are these turbidity flows. And they found out, well, they're happening all the time, every few weeks to every few months in the upper canyon. But the deeper you go, the less frequent you'll see these. And Charlie was very creative in the way he looked at this. And he developed with Embari something called a vibracore that you can put on the front of the ROV to create, to take cores at specific locations uh, that wouldn't be possible from a ship. Normally as using a piston core or something like that, you drop it from the ship, it hits the bottom and you come up with a core that might be really long, but you, you can only maybe hit a football field. You can't really target an area two meters one way or the other. With the ROV, Charlie's able to take now 12 cores that are up to one or two meters long at different distances across the canyon. And what he found, along with others looking at these canyons, is that you'll see a layer of turbidites, this mixed sand that slowly grades into fine sand, a layer of fine sand from a quiescent period, and then another layer of an, an event that hit later. And when you look from canyon to canyon, especially this work in the Pacific Northwest, all of the canyons seem to have the same pattern, which suggests that there must be some regional trigger to these events that are coming down the canyons. And the only one you can think of, and I think Charlie worked on this, is that, that it had to be an earthquake. And so these large earthquakes may be creating these, uh, these turbidity events that go down the canyons, even though there are small events that happen every few years, or every, I'm sorry, every few months. I could imagine that uh, spectacularly wet years with a lot of uh, debris running down some of the rivers, uh, like the Salinas River and so forth. Uh, and and what's, what, what's the river that runs into, uh, or at least used to run into uh, Moss Landing Harbor? Uh, the Pajaro is what you're thinking yeah, of. Yeah, Pajaro. That would run through Elkhorn Slough. And yeah. it, it doesn't have much flow. Yeah. And so there is this, there are these flows that come down rivers that, are, and then end up running down canyons that people have tried to find called hyperpycnal flows. And normally, as you know, seawater is far heavier than freshwater. So when rivers flow out onto the ocean, that fresh water basically floats on top of the ocean for quite some time. But if you have a really muddy river that has such a heavy load of sediment in it, that sediment laden water can be heavier than normal seawater. And so when rivers that are full of mud come roaring out during a flood, 
that water may be heavier and actually go down the canyon rather than float over it. And in the, I think it was 1995, that's exactly what we measured in Monterey Canyon. Charlie was involved in this, as was Ken Johnson, myself, and others. Then I happened to have a current meter that had an, um, a salinity sensor on it sitting at a thousand, roughly a thousand meters in Monterey Canyon. And there was a perturbation, uh, there was a freshwater signal that hit that sensor. And we determined from that, those data from that sensor, as well as others, that there was a hyperpycnal flow that actually went down the canyon uh, at that time. A lower salinity, but a high density. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly right, Bob. Wow. Interesting. Cool stuff. Uh, if you've just tuned in, uh, this is the Ecology Hour, and uh, we're talking to Dr. Jim Berry from uh, Monterey Bay uh, Aquarium Research Institute in Moss Landing. He's a lead scientist there. And uh, we were going to talk about uh, what they what they do generally at Monterey Bay Research Institute, and uh, and then great into uh, uh, Jim's specialty was benthic ecology, animals that live on the bottom, and how they're affected by ecological change. And uh, uh, we only have twenty minutes left, so <laughs> <laughs> we haven't quite gotten there yet. Yeah, we haven't quite gotten there yet. Yeah, yeah. So. Well. Talk fast. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I could, uh, I could, if you'd like, I could tell you some of the, the kind of hot off the press stuff that just actually not even in the press yet that we just discovered in the last uh, cruise offshore, or we could talk about climate change either way. Oh, let's hear about the new stuff. I'm, I, I'm always keen to hear. We've been talking so far about how the how you're doing the science, so I think it'd be fun to hear what you're finding. Sure. Well, we have been working more recently in the last couple of years on a couple areas off the coast here, one of them called Sir Ridge, which is a small ridge about 20 meters, or sorry, 20 miles off of Point Sur, uh, just south of Monterey Bay. And I work with uh, a research coordinator at Monterey Bay National Marine Sanctuary called Andrew de Vogelaire. And we've been working on a variety of projects through the years. And we've always speculated about Sir Ridge and whether it had deep sea corals on it or not. And I said, no, I think it's all covered with mud. Not that that's not interesting, but the sanctuary is very interested in corals and Davidson Seamount has been included in Monterey Bay National Marine Sanctuary in part because of the work that Mbari and others have done there to document some of the coral and sponge communities on top of that seamount. So we had a little extra time during one of our cruises that Andrew was on, and we said, well, let's go out and dive on Davidson, I'm sorry, on Sir Ridge. And so we chose a spot. And when we came upon this, we landed the ROV in 1,200 meters of water, about 50 meters away from the edge of the seamount. We couldn't see it, but as we approached it, we immediately started to see these coral communities, these beautiful red and pink, orange corals and bright yellow and gray and different colors of sponges one of the most beautiful places I've been diving along this coast with the ROV. And so we've worked on Sir Ridge and these coral communities, and we have established what we call a deep sea coral sponge observatory at Sir Ridge, where we've placed various instruments, including current meters that'll measure the flow and kind of think of a hillside where the wind is kind of whipping across the ridge and there's strong winds on one side and, and nice little quiet areas in some areas. That's exactly what happens with subsea ridges where the currents sweep past the ridge and accelerate as they go over that rough topography. And all of those filter feeders and suspension feeders like corals and sponges are sitting there 
waiting to feed on that material that's being swept past. And one of the things we did is develop a deep sea time-lapse camera that we placed in the water in March of 2020, just before the pandemic really hit us. In fact, when we came back from the March 2020 cruise, Ambari shut down our ship ops. We went out again. We just reopened ship ops a little while later. Um, and we were able to go out last week and we are two weeks ago now. And we recovered this camera that has been taking it one picture every hour of a coral and sponge wall about the size of your living room wall here in my case. And it's been taking a picture an hour for a year. And I just had uh, so roughly 9,000 high resolution images. And I pasted them all together into a, just a time lapse that will last a minute and a half just to see what was happening. And you can see all these animals scurrying around, the currents are running back and forth and the currents are wa the corals are waving in the currents. And we have not even had time to, to do anything but take a quick look yet. But that's, that's one of the exciting um, results that we've had from that cruise. Is it just... Oh man, I can't! I can't wait to see the YouTube video of that. <laughs> yeah. and, I'm sure and, we'll do that eventually. Yeah, yeah. What's the what depth is that? That camera sits we at um, about thirteen hundred meters. So what's that? Four thousand feet, roughly. In case, in yeah. case our readers are, are unaware, um, you can think about roughly two kinds of corals: those that live uh, in warm water in the tropics and the shallows, and have uh, little algae living in their their tissues, um, and they feed off the the what what the algae makes during photosynthesis. And then we have deep water corals that are uh, where there's actually organic matter raining down from the shallow part of the ocean into the deep water, and they live in these cold, dark environments, and uh, and uh, they don't have those kind of uh, algae in their tissues. Bob, thanks for pointing that out. That's an important distinction because these colonies are, and they're animals, they depend upon this rain of organic debris. They consume phytoplankton or zooplankton, small critters and organic debris that's sweeping past. Mm, right. And, uh, oops, sorry about that. Yeah. There's no light. There's no light down there and it's extremely cold, right? <laughs> It's it's the temperatures are roughly three degrees and it's always dark. So anything below, gosh, um, I apologize for the noises. Um, on our coastline, what, light only penetrates to at max a few hundred meters. So anything below that's dark all the time, except for bioluminescence. And um, speaking of cold, I'll give you one more quick um, update from that cruise. The other area that we're working is at the base of Davidson Seamount and what's called the foothills of Davidson Seamount at about 3,200 meters. The temperature is 1.6 degrees centigrade. So that's what, roughly three and a half, four degrees Fahrenheit, or I'm sorry, about 35 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, the, during some ocean exploration cruises run by NOAA, some of the scientists aboard, including those that I work with, discovered aggregations of, of uh, octopuses, deep sea octopuses that were brooding young in warm springs at the base of Davidson Seamount. Normally octopuses lay eggs on rocks and they sit there by themselves and they brood those eggs for some period of time. And the colder the water is, the longer it takes to brood those animals, or to brood those eggs. And the 
Bruce Robeson, who you mentioned a little while ago, Bob, years ago found an octopus laying eggs on a rock at about 1,500 meters depth in Monterey Canyon. And he went back and watched that animal, and you could identify it from scars on its head. And he watched how long it took from successive visits. How long did it take to brood those eggs? Turned out it was over four years before these eggs hatched. It's the longest brood period of any animal known. Wow. Now, how does that relate to what I've been That's dedication. About? That is dedication. And those, those moms die after that. So this yeah. ocean exploration crews, they found what they thought was kind of shimmering water. And that shimmering water comes from a difference in temperature. And it w- turned out it was warm water. And these octopuses are breeding in large aggregations of hundreds to thousands of animals sitting there in these warm springs. And so we've been studying those for the last couple of years. Now this is deeper, 3,200 meters, 1.6 degrees. And if you use the relationship of temperature versus brood period for 30 species of octopuses, the estimate is that it's gonna take them over 10 years, maybe as much as 15 years to brood those eggs. Now I think, and others with me think that they're using those warm springs basically as an incubator so that they can speed up their metabolism and and hatch their young much more rapidly. And that's exactly what we're trying to figure out now. And so I'll have to give wow. you an update sometime. <laughs> yeah. I've yeah. seen some YouTube videos that uh, had congregations of uh, off the California coast of, uh, of octopuses there. You know, you'd see uh, an area that have 15 or 20 of them, uh, you know, with the camera would pick them up from the ROV. And I couldn't remember whether that was Davidson or whether it was uh, out in the Fairlawns. Um, well, it's probably Davidson. They got a fair amount of press, these octopus gardens. And yeah. and yeah. there was one paper published from uh, some of the same people involved, and they found something similar in Warm Springs off of Costa Rica. But when they looked at the eggs, pardon me, none of the eggs were developing. And they thought these octopus moms made a mistake they bred in an area where they're basically their young are being cooked. And so they thought this was just a mistake and the rest of the population must be breeding somewhere else. And I, th- I think we think now that that may not be the case. We've seen them at other um, hydrothermal vent areas, not right in the vent areas, but on the flanks up in the Pacific Northwest. We don't know about their temperature, but we've measured temperatures up to about 10 degrees centigrade where normally it's about 1.6. And so maybe they do occasionally make a mistake, but we've now had temperature sensors there for a year and it never gets super hot. It always ranges between two to 10 degrees. So so that we think that's what's going on is they're, they've evolved to, to increase their kind of reproductive success by breeding in these warm springs. That's and, really interesting. Oh, it's fascinating to see that underwater. Yeah, it is. And the geologist in me wonders where, what's driving the hydrothermal activity, but oh, well, we've got, <laughs> that's probably it. No, I think that it is really interesting. And I, this is all kind of a, a broken up uh, volcanic. It's part of the Davidson Seamounts about, according to Dave Clegg, a geologist in Ambari, who's worked on Davidson a lot. It's about 50 million years old. It's kind of extinct. But this area definitely has some hydrothermal circulation, whether it's porous rock, and this is all kind of at the peak of a cliff. So my our guess is that porous um, 
set or porous volcanic material allows water to flow in from the side or the bottom where it's heated and then rises by convection, driving that hydrothermal circulation and that warm water is coming out near the top where these octopuses are found. That's how the, uh, that's how the mid-ocean ridges work. Um, they got mm -hmm. water that comes in from the side and then it gets, yeah. it gets entrained uh, and, 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 and <clears throat> They're not just warm though; they're actually hot. Yeah. There's right. Know, there's new met, new yeah. new crust being formed there from. That's right, and but in this case, we there's still obviously a strong heat gradient as you get into the the bottom, but it must be close enough that there's local heating and that can drive this circulation. At least that's what we're starting as a working hypothesis with it. How localized are the are the communities that develop around these warm springs? A big area or just real small? No, it's 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 kind of spread across several kilometers, and we've in other dives with our colleagues have found other sites a few kilometers away, also at the top of some of these areas. And what we see is when you see cracks in the rock or any area where you can see a black manganese crust and it, it's not covered with sediment. There are little holes where these octopuses have been breeding, maybe for thousands of years, that they come back to this area. And we think that they probably don't sit there for 15 years, as that temperature relationship would predict, that they're turning over much more rapidly. And that's, we've now marked many of these or mapped them, and we're trying to follow individuals to see both what the condition of their egg development is, as well as how long does a female sit on a nest? When do they disappear? But they're kind of, yeah, cracks all over. And whenever you see this warm water, you see them. Is Jim, has that become part of your uh, physiological ecology uh, research? Uh, you, you're looking at the physiology of these animals as best you can with the instruments and data you can get? Well, we hope to. We have been measuring their, trying to measure their physiology using actually taking an oxygen probe and a temperature probe that we can direct with the ROV, it's about a pencil sized sensor that we can put route right down to their X current funnel. So they, they wow. breathe by taking in water under their mantle and then they squeeze it out through that jet that you might see called a funnel. Yeah. And yeah, so right. we'll actually have the ROV operators will position that sensor right in that about two centimeter broad funnel so that we can measure what the temperature is, as well as what the oxygen concentration is coming out. And then we measure the oxygen concentration in the surrounding area. And we also can watch their, their ventilation rate. So we can try and estimate their, their respiratory uh, rate based on that. And we also have a technique or a system we call the benthic respiration system, which we developed that has eight chambers that are basically glass jars that we can put an animal in and it has a stirring motor, a sensor, and we can measure directly what the metabolic rate of animals are when we put them in those chambers. The problem is these animals are sitting in warm water. We want to do that where they're sitting. Please. I, I, I just uh, have to say that's mind blowing to think that you're able to get that level of detail and monitoring something that closely when it is so inaccessible. I mean, this is miles offshore and 4,000 feet down. Yeah, even, yeah, it's it's more like 12,000 feet down. It's pretty amazing that oh, we're sorry, able to 4, do that. sorry, 4,000 meters, yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's remarkable. And the imagery that we get from it with these beautiful, uh, I mean, it's a fascinating place. I wish I could bring everybody there, but hopefully some of this will come out um, with some of the PR that we have that uh, as we start to publish this material.
Yeah, we'll get some links up, by the way, on our, our website on ecologyhour.wordpress.com. Uh, links to your website, your research, and uh, also maybe to some of these videos that you've already put up. They're just, you can you can sit there just mesmerized for hours watching mm -hmm. some of this stuff. And Bari has a YouTube channel as well, where there's all kinds of material there that fascinates me. Well, if you've just, if you've just tuned into our program, uh, give you a little update. We're uh, talking to Dr. Jim Barry from the Monterey Bay Aquarium Research Institute and talking about deep water uh, animals and uh, remote operated vehicles and uh, things that happen deep in the ocean and just got through talking about octopuses, deep water octopuses and their physiology. Uh, what other sorts of uh, interest do you have uh, in, in deep water benthic or bottom dwelling organisms that you may be doing research on right now? Well, um, a couple. Another one that actually came up during a cruise last December. We were looking for additional octopus gardens in the base around the base of Davidson Seamount, and we were traversing an area across some muddy area to a, a spot about a kilometer away, where we were trying to get to another hillside to look for octopus. And as we were moving across this muddy area, um, we noticed some big. Um, divots in the bottom in the mud as if an anchor had just hit the bottom recently and we thought wow these are really odd and in and they all looked very very similar and what we finally determined that this was based on both our observations as well as some reports from around the world is that beaked whales probably cuvier's beaked whales or uh, possibly baird's beaked whale are diving to over 3,000 meters and probably hunting some of the large fishes, this one called, uh, gosh, I've forgotten the common name, Spectrunculus. It's a very large fish, gets a meter or more long, kind of a slow moving fish along the bottom. We think they're actually hitting them and pinning them to the seabed. And they have those whales, if you look up those beaked whales, they have a very characteristic shape to their snout. And that's probably what are making these impressions on the bottom. And so, that was just a sort of a, a happenstance um, serendipitous observation that we had during this cruise as we're moving across the seabed. Um, it's not necessarily one of the focal areas of my research, but I, I thought I had to mention it because it was another kind of cool thing that happened on this cruise. Um, it, is, it is cool that you're, you're tracking whales. <laughs> well, and they're known to feed very deep and they're known to feed in this area. We have them along this coast. They get around uh, 30 meters long, these animals, and they can dive very deep. Brings, brings to mind the uh, bottom feeding gray whales up in the Chukchi Sea, uh, mm -hmm. diving down and, and scooping up the uh, a big load of mud in their mouth and sifting through it and picking out the uh, organisms and... Uh, and leaving little scars on the bottom. Right. It, it, I, it's reminiscent of that for me as well. You know, a friend of mine, John Oliver, along the coast here, used to work in the Arctic on some of those uh, amphipod beds where the whales were feeding and other areas that they were feeding. And I remember some of his publications having uh, figures that showed that sort of described the shape of these gray whale feeding pits. And these beaked whale feeding, feeding pits have also been seen up in the Arctic as well. Is Jim still? Uh, is John still around down in Monterey? Um, I haven't seen John for years. I think he's still yeah. around, but I I yeah. haven't seen him for yeah. quite some time. 
Yeah. We used to, we used to uh, correspond a little bit. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, you asked, I'll just mention briefly, one of the things that really is a centerpiece of my research program is also trying to understand how ocean change, largely driven by climate change, which would include warming, ocean acidification, and decreasing oxygen levels, affects the performance of marine animals and the function of marine communities. So we've developed in my lab a system that we can control temperature, oxygen, and the pH or the acidity of water so that we can bring animals in either from shallow water or deep water if we can keep them alive in the lab and study their growth rates, some, something about their performance, whether it's growth, survival, or their physiology under laboratory conditions where we can control very precisely what conditions they're seeing. And that's something that we use most recently to look at how abalone larvae or abalone juveniles respond to differences in ocean conditions. Because as you know, we're undergoing a big change in ocean conditions due to climate change. Well, we certainly have a... Uh, <coughs> yeah, it's a recurring theme. population up here that's <laughs> undergoing a lot of change uh, due to some of the loss of kelp along our coast. Mm -hmm. appears to be coming back, but uh, with that warming event in 2013, uh, uh, we seem to have some sort of a cascade of events that end up affecting the abalone, uh, probably through the drift kelp uh, being uh, much less abundant. And um, so that I don't know if the abalone populations are on their way back or not, but uh, one certainly hopes so because it was an important fishery and an important source of uh, tourism for us, yeah. you know. Yeah, the beaches were pretty littered with abalone shells for a couple of years after that. Uh, and that that's a whole different marine environment than what we've, I mean, we've talked about that several times on the show, the nearshore marine. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's a real eye-opener to talk with you, Dr. Barry, about the environment at the of the deep sea that responds in a completely different way. Uh, how much effect do you see down there of these surficial warming events? Do they show up at all? Well... I think in part time it's hard for us to know because one of the things we have from shallow water is a pretty good baseline of what has been there for years and years. And so when we have a catastrophic event like the warm blob that really affected kelp beds up and down the coast here, um, we know what happened because we have a lot of people out there looking. Um, in deeper water, we don't have that baseline that tells us here's how kind of normal conditions are and how things have changed um, under some event like that. I would also say that the the effects of some of these uh, events are not as strong in deep water as they are in shallow water, at least for warming. Now, Bruce Robeson, who we talked about a little earlier, who has for now over 30 years, been going out and looking at the same depths and running small video transects to try and get a handle on what are the animals that are living out there and how do they change seasonally. Um, he's been doing that for 30 years and has a great baseline. And one of the things that is detectable is the, a change in the distribution of some animals due to the expansion and the intensification of what's called the oxygen minimum zone off our coast. And um, as, as you go into deep water off our coast from the surface, the surface waters are replete with oxygen because that's where air sea gas exchange occurs and that's where phytoplankton are growing so lots of oxygen in shallow water lots of plant growth and lots of, of food web interactions in the surface but as that organic debris sinks it 
is remineralized, consumed by all of the fishes, bacteria, everything that eats it. And oxygen levels drop because of respiration and CO2 levels rise. So pH goes down and oxygen levels also go down. That uh, that um, oxygen, low oxygen layer called the oxygen minimum zone has been shoaling toward the surface. And so the low oxygen boundary is moving toward the surface over time due to global warming. And animals that can't tolerate low oxygen levels are also creeping up into shallower water. Now, is that a big deal? Well, maybe not with a little bit of change, but eventually if those animals that dive into deep water during the sunrise to avoid predators in sunlit surface waters during the day and then go back to the surface at night to feed, if they can't dive into deep water because low oxygen levels are too stressful, then they have to remain in that sunlit surface layer where there's plenty of oxygen, making them more vulnerable to predators. So you can have large changes in whole ecosystems based on a change in a single parameter like oxygen in deep water. Kind of a quick but long explanation. Yeah, that was great though. It was, you really told the story and you're doing the research that will allow you to see if that is actually occurring, right? You're seeing these animals move up into shallower water already. We're trying to look at some of the benthic animals, which is my specialty, to see if they have the same vulnerabilities to either warming or ocean acidification or low oxygen levels. So, one, of yeah. the things that, one of the things that happens during warm water events uh, along the Pacific coast is we get a, a northward migration of uh, southerly uh, animals. Uh, I can remember being on a ship and watching these Galathead crabs. It was back in during one of the warm water events in the late 70s uh, off Point Conception. And these Galathead crabs, which are normally you find off of, uh, of uh, Baja, California, are just streaming by. <laughs> You'd see one every 10 or 12 feet, you know, just going along with the Davidson countercurrent up the coast past Point Conception headed towards Monterey. I wonder, you probably don't have the data, but do you think any phenomenon like that happens and could happen eventually in deep water? We should see changes in the distribution of uh, animals uh, in response to warm, warmer waters, or is it just so damn cold down there that it, we wouldn't expect anything to, to happen? Well, I, I think it probably does happen, but it's a little bit less detectable for a couple of reasons. First, if you are in if you go to southern california the water's really warm at the surface and it's a much colder up here of course but if you go into deep water in southern california it's about the same temperature as deep water off our coast here so many of the animals that um, are found in deep water have very broad geographic ranges because conditions are not that different as you move south or north if right. you're in intertidal regions here if you get below Point Conception or above Cape Mendocino, there are very different kind of environmental regimes. And actually right. some of our research in the mid nineties showed exactly what you're talking about. Some of the intertidal invertebrates at Hopkins Marine Station really changed their range according to what we were able to detect from a study that, ha was a, that happened by a guy named Hewitt in the 1930s who documented what was there. And then we came back in the nineties and saw that some of the northern species that typically live further north had become far rarer in Monterey. And some of the southern species that have affinities far south have become far more abundant in Monterey. So this migration 
uh, during those warm water events, like in El Nino, where you'll see a marlin off of Seattle, that kind of, you know, that can seed an area with 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 warm water fauna. If conditions return to cold, then maybe they don't last. But if conditions slowly warm, eventually you'll see them in those areas. And that's what we see now. Even things yeah. like triggerfish in Santa Cruz Harbor. Um, so there's some oddities that show up that eventually become the norm. In deep water, I think the same thing can happen, but it, it'll be damped a little bit. Yeah, and it, probably a slower process. It just seems like everything happens more slowly in deep water. Absolutely. Things happen pretty slowly, except these turbidity flows that we talked about earlier. But yeah. if you, you know, biological processes are just generally far slower in cold water. So that's what you see in deep water. And the, the current movement is a lot slower. I mean, the, the surface of the ocean moves pretty rapidly and uh, the currents down where you're working in those several thousand meters depth there's still a lot of current there, right? But the the velocities are lower. Well, actually, no. You can get very high velocities near the bottom, and and in fact, oh, especially pretty. near seamounts, because you know when you if you think about going outside in a wind during the wind uh, any wind event, and if you're near some wall that's really focusing that that wind when you go out the door, and all of a sudden you're hit with this blast. But if you go out the other side of the house, there's no wind. That's no different than uh, the wind, than the currents coming across a seamount, where we get uh, currents up to almost a knot. Um, so, you know, a mile or two an hour, really f rapid currents on the bottom, even in in very deep water. It's it's remarkable. Interesting. This has been a great conversation. I could, I think we could talk with you for two or three hours. <laughs> we didn't even get to the uh, to the whale fall and the uh, the more topical. Uh, story about the containers. You guys have been finding those on the bottom, yeah. and uh, that yeah. of course ties in with what's been going on around the world. Uh, so is, maybe yes. we'll have to uh, get back together on a future show and explore some of those topics. But I certainly have learned a great deal about what's happening down at the bottom of the ocean. This has been a great conversation. I want to thank you for it. Thank you, Jim. It was it was great. You you, you earned a return invite for sure. <laughs> yeah, well, Tim, Bob, I I really appreciate the invitation. I'd be happy to come back and chat again. Good. And there's always plenty to talk about with the oceans. I can't help but you know we're all fascinated by what goes on under the ocean, and we're lucky enough to have some of the access to the ocean to really get there and see what's going on. So yeah. I'm happy to share it. Thank you, everyone, yeah, for listening. Fantastic. I hope you enjoyed it as much as Bob and I did. And thank you, Dr. Barry. We will have links, as I said, on our website. That's ecologyhour.wordpress.com. And uh, it will be fun to look at some of those videos. Thanks very much for listening. This has been a production of KZYX Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM, Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. You can check out our website at kzyx.org to find more content like this, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thanks for listening.